Well, welcome to City Life. Good to see you this Saturday evening. And we are indeed taking off for the DR first thing tomorrow morning. And we're, I think it's our fifth trip. And we're going 10 times over the course of 10 years. We have a 10-year agreement with this village in the Dominican Republic, and uh, we're just halfway through it. And it's kind of like what Sharon was saying in that, uh, in that video announcement. If I was going to give you all the stories and all the ways that we've been able to sow into that community, I wouldn't have any time to preach tonight. But I can just let you know that this church, we've sponsored some 60-plus kids. We've seen healings in the community because we visit homes and we pray for people. We've distributed Bibles in the community. We're doing that again this year. We've built latrines like Corb was talking about. We've built a water filtration system. We're in the process of building an irrigation system for the village. All these things are happening because this church is so generous. We got individual sponsorships, but then any giving towards missions, right, it's going towards things like that. It's also going towards local outreaches like what Sharon was talking about with Cherish. So I simply want to to add to that video to provoke you tonight, as it would say in Hebrews. Uh, If you haven't stepped into that opportunity to give towards missions, why not make that night tonight? There's those cards on your pew. But I just, I simply ask you to pray about it. You know, two weeks ago, we talked about 2 Corinthians 8, how the Macedonian church, in the midst of all this uh, poverty, in the midst of these trials, sowed into the church in Jerusalem that was going through a famine. And if they're sowing into each other, how much more the American church here in the West, as blessed as we are, what an opportunity we have to sow all around the world. We have missionaries in China, missionaries in Turkey. We have trips that go to Haiti, the Dominican Republic, and then again, things like Cherished right around the corner, operating with uh, strip clubs to minister to them. All these different things happen because of your generosity. So first of all, thank you. Appreciate it. And we're going to be able to sow into that community next week because of your generosity. So as we get rolling tonight, though, I believe if you pay attention tonight and God works in your heart tonight, you'll be stirred towards that. But if you have your Bibles, if you could turn to Acts chapter 11, specifically verse 19. But again, tomorrow at the the crack of dawn... There's going to be a team of 12 of us, and we're going to fly 1,400 miles to Santo Domingo and then take a, a six-hour drive up into the hills of La Guasara. And uh, on the way there, we stop at JFK Airport. So that's the 20th biggest international airport in the world. Uh, but on the way back, we stop at Atlanta International Airport, which is for 20 years running the busiest airport. You could call it the biggest. It sees the most passengers every year in the world. Well over 100 million people pass through Atlanta's international airport to get to a little bit of here, there, or everywhere. Now, if you were to take somebody from Jesus's time or before that, or even just a few hundred years ago and show them that you can just hop on a plane, go to the other side of the world, or whatever your destination is, that would be wild to them. This whole travel culture is kind of a new thing in our world because for the most part, there was no quote-unquote travel culture in biblical times. Most travel was difficult, it was expensive, both due to danger and violence, then factor in the scarcity of well-maintained roads, the utter unpredictability of travel times over water, and a lot of people went a lifetime without traveling very far from home. Again, travel culture, it's kind of this later addition, this idea that we can hop on a plane, train, or automobile, or the subway, and I'm going to my destination, right? This ability to travel and go distances so easily. And sure, a plane, a train, a bus, it has one destination, but those people on a plane, for the most part, are usually individuals getting to my destination or going where I need to go. But I've been trying to brush up on my Spanish for this trip for the DR, because I took like 
four, maybe five years in high school and college, but it's been about 12 or 13 years. So how many of you guys know if you don't practice it, it goes away? I remember squat diddly. And every time I go back to the DR, I, I, I feel bad, right, that I should remember more. But if you're familiar with Spanish or maybe any other language, I know in Spanish for the, the pronoun you, there's singular and there's plural versions. Even there's informal and formal, right? Usted and ustedes, tú and vosotros. And, and it's the same when you look at the Bible, where the Old Testament is in Hebrew and the New Testament is in Greek. Those languages have a singular pronoun for you. And then you can see in translations, there's also a plural pronoun for you. But in English, right, it gets tricky. Because when I say you in a conversation, I could be talking to all of you. Or I could be in a conversation with somebody and say you and just be talking to that one person I'm addressing. So I don't know how many of you read the King James Version. That's why the King James Version uses, like, these, thous, and then yees, right? Yees is the plural. The whole use of those pronouns is probably the reason why most of us don't read the King James Version, but that's why they use it, right? And I've been an advocate for a while. You know, they had the message version not too long ago where it's just, like, a newer translation. We need a, a y'all's version, right, or y'all, whatever, right, where you got you, singular, and then every time it's y'all, it's easy, right? That's plural. It could be the southern version, and I come to you with good news and great tidings of great joy. There is an app called the Texas Bible. And it replaces the plural you with y'all in English Bible translations. And maybe you would say, why? Why put in all that work? Well, there are at least 4,700 verses, about half in the Greek and half in the Hebrew, where you plural is translated you in the English. So it could easily lead a reader to think that what's directed to a community or God's people is directed to them individually. And it's important. Like, for example, look at one of the most crucial conversations, not just in the Bible, but in all of history between Jesus Christ and Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 7, don't be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. So the first you in that verse is talking to Nicodemus, one-on-one conversation. It's singular in the Greek. That second you is plural. So it's not just that Nicodemus needs to be born again and saved and redeemed. No, everybody on the planet, all of humanity needs to be born again and saved and redeemed. Yes, Jesus came to save individuals, but he didn't just come to redeem only the individual. He came to redeem the world and died for the world and everyone in it. We see in Jesus, one of his most pivotal statements about salvation and redemption is plural, not singular. But often in our individualistic culture, Christianity can become the religion of the individual. Where once you get saved, you check that box, you strike out on your journey of following Jesus Christ, but for the most part, it's just you getting to your destination in heaven. You might have a Samwise Gamgee to your Frodo, but for the most part, when you're on this path and you're on this journey, it's just me, myself, and I getting to my destination in heaven. But God's vision is so much bigger than a bunch of individuals getting saved and making it to heaven solo. And hear me, I'm not saying that your individual faith in God isn't important. Clearly it is, right? When I was in youth ministry, I used to remind the kids constantly, like, you're not saved through osmosis, right? You're not saved by your parents' faith. We're not saved by other people's in the church faith. You're not saved by your pastor's faith or your wife or your husband's faith. Your personal faith is pivotal. It's primary. And it may very well be the primary concern, but it can't be our solitary concern, and with all this talk of, of words and language, and like, I do want to turn to Acts chapter 11 in a place where it's key in the Bible because it's the first place we see Jesus' disciples and followers being called Christians. It's in Antioch, and it's in chapter 11. 
So this word Christian, it can be possessive, kind of meaning like Christ's crowd, Christ's crew, get some alliteration in there. Or it can, be, it can mean diminutive, like little Christ's. But either way, we see and we know one thing, that they were so countercultural and stood apart so strikingly that the city decided that this group deserved a name. So we see in Acts chapter 11, starting in verse 19. I'm going to read through verse 26. It says, Meanwhile, the believers who had been scattered during the persecution after Stephen's death traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch of Syria. They preached the word of God, but only to Jews. However, some of the believers who went to Antioch from Cyprus and Cyrene began preaching to the Gentiles about the Lord Jesus. The power of the Lord was with them, and a large number of these Gentiles believed and turned to the Lord. When the church at Jerusalem heard what had happened, they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he arrived and saw this evidence of God's blessing, he was filled with joy. And he encouraged the believers to stay true to the Lord. Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and strong in faith. And many people were brought to the Lord. It says, then when Barnabas went on to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. Both of them stayed there with the church for a full year, teaching large crowds of people. It was at Antioch that the believers were first called Christians. So as we've been talking about for about the past month, when we read these accounts in the book of Acts, or we read these epistles that Paul is writing to churches, these aren't just like imaginary places. They're real cities in real world history where, where culture is taking place, and there's different perspectives and things that people are walking through. And when we take that into account and we reflect on this passage we just read, we see that it still has major implications for our faith today. Some 2,000 years later, when it comes to living a faith that's countercultural, that's obedient to Jesus. Because I just want to look at three things from the church in Antioch. And the first is this. The first is this idea that Jesus isn't just looking for involvement. He's looking for commitment. You read Acts chapter 11, that first verse we read, it says that they were scattered by persecution. These people that were traveling to Antioch and these other regions, they weren't doing it as tourists. They weren't doing it for enjoyment. They were doing it due to persecution. They were trying not to get arrested, persecuted, maybe even killed for their faith. And what's interesting to me in the book of Acts is if you look at Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus tells his followers and his disciples, look, I want you to, to take this, this good news right, from Jerusalem through Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But you get about eight, ten chapters into Acts, that hasn't even happened yet. It's still parked in Jerusalem. But we see this persecution that it's referencing here, the persecution that's sparked by the stoning of Stephen, that actually pushes the church out to where that discomfort is actually what caused their obedience, right? What the enemy was going to use to destroy the church, Jesus actually used to spread the church and to do his work. See, in Acts, Luke, when he says, uses this word scattering, it's not just the general word for scattering. It's the word that you would use for scattering seed. And it kind of causes me to reflect on a verse or a quote I've said here before. It's one of my favorites by Walter Wink where he says, killing Jesus was like trying to kill a dandelion seed head by blowing on it. Right? These people were scattered. They were suffering. They were fleeing for their lives. They were refugees, but they weren't just refugees. They were witnesses. That's why it says they kept telling the message. They weren't just fleeing. They were preaching along the way. But a culture of, of individualism, like the one we live in, it preaches self-interest as the highest good. And so often in our culture and in the church, because of our culture, you'll see what you might call a contract faith. I'm all in as long as things are all good. right? As, things, as soon as things get rough or things aren't working out the way I thought they would, then I'm good. 
You know, it reminds me of a story I heard once long ago of, of a, a kamikaze pilot who was coming back from his 50th mission. Now, kamikazes, it was this method, this last-ditch effort by the Japanese military because they were dealing with outdated planes, inexperienced pilots, and they just kept getting their butt whooped by the allies. So this was like a last-ditch effort where they were pilot-guided missiles where the pilot sacrificed himself and his plane to sink an enemy target, like an enemy ship. At one point, however, a Japanese newspaper was interviewing this kamikaze pilot who was coming back from his 50th mission. So do the math. Like, you go out on a mission and you sacrifice yourself. He's coming back from his 50th kamikaze mission, and this reporter basically calls him out on it. And what he said was, well, I was very involved. Not very committed, but very involved. This was a half-hearted kamikaze. In reality, he wasn't one. A true kamikaze gives his life for one mission, and commitment isn't an option. It comes with the territory. I share that because there's, again, a massive difference between involvement and commitment, and Jesus seeks the latter. That's why he says things like, like, obey the Lord your God and love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. It's why he says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And he says things like, hey, if you want to save your life, lose it. And if you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. These challenging phrases, he's calling for committed Christians laying down their life to reach others and build his kingdom. It's what Jesus did. He didn't just reach people. People followed him in droves. There were thousands at multiple occasions in the Gospels, this crowd that would follow him. But Jesus wasn't infatuated with crowds because he knows crowds were fickle. They weren't committed. They were just interested, maybe a little involved but not committed. And he wasn't looking for those that say, well, I'm all in as long as things are all good. And he wasn't looking for those that say, well, I'm involved not very committed, but I'm involved, right? He's looking for commitment, and that involves stepping from an individual focus to a communal one, where self-interest is no longer the higher good, where we realize that community is not just helpful to our faith. It's, it's vital to our faith. And that's the second thing that the church in Antioch can teach us, that Jesus isn't just calling me. He's calling a we. Now, I don't know what you did for Father's Day. Uh, I broke away from being a father and went off to be a husband. Steph and I went on our first date in a while, right? And uh, we went and saw the movie Solo. And uh, if you've seen that, basically the whole lesson is like what God says in Genesis. It's not, it's not good for man to be solo, right? It's, it's easy. <laughs> when, you, when you break down, it's about this loner and how he became involved in something bigger than himself. And it's a Star Wars story. And so I've referenced this before, but bear with me. <laughs> uh, in these new Star Wars movies, there's been... Actors and actresses, prominent ones that line up to just play cameo roles. Like in, in, a, in The Force Awakens, one of them is Daniel Craig. He's been in like 40 movies. He's been James Bond for a decade. And he came up to the director and was like, hey, I, I just want to play a role. I don't care if it's prominent. It could be a cameo. So he puts on in this movie uh, 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 one of the outfits that Stormtroopers wear where you can't see any of their features, couldn't recognize them, wouldn't even know it's him, but word got out. So you might ask, well, Why? Why would these people line up for roles that they're not getting paid a lot for? People don't even know it's them. And the most likely explanation for him and for so many of these other actors and actresses is that Star Wars is such a huge story in film history that they happily stepped into a role, even if it's not a starring one. And their perspective is it's about the story, not about being the star. It's, It's about the bigger story and not me. And that should speak to us, especially in our culture where I have nothing against selfies. There's selfies on my Instagram feed, but we live in a selfie culture, and we need to have an appreciation for the story. 
least a bigger appreciation, that there's a rich fulfillment in life that you'll find living in a story that's bigger than yourself, not being the star in our own script all the time. But this counters everything our culture packages for us within the box of extreme individualism. This idea that there are individual stories and experiences, but not one big story, not one big truth, right? Find your truth, find your story, and live it and be happy. But Jesus doesn't just call me to my story. He calls a we to his church and to its story. Because what I want for me, God wants for many. I want purpose. I want salvation. I want to get to heaven. God wants that for many. And the church is his vehicle to seeing that happen. And people reached. And Antioch did just that. This is one of the most significant moves of God recorded. When you look at the fact they were the first group and church to really reach out to the Gentiles. And we'll get more into that in a second. But you might say, all right, this is a big church. They did a lot of good things. Who do we give credit to? This is one of the rare times in the New Testament where it's talking about a church or Paul's writing to a church or we get an account in the book of Acts and there's no names listed. A bunch of anonymous believers just working hard to build the kingdom together. No individual is giving credit. So what does this confront in our culture? Just again, this this selfie focus, whether it's self-promotion or self-preservation. These folks didn't have a contract faith. They weren't looking for a statue or a monument. They remind us what the Bible makes abundantly clear, that we aren't saved into some navel-gazing, selfie spirituality that's focused fully on self-preservation or self-promotion. And as a result, these folks in Antioch went down in the Bible as unnamed and anonymous, but they went down for changing church history as we know it and culture since. See, Jesus, he didn't save you to just send you to heaven and make you a better person in this life without affecting the culture and the world and society around you. Deliberately or not, so often though we subscribe to that. That's why you see throughout history, Christian denominations not getting involved in civil rights or slavery or helping the poor because the you for them that needs to be redeemed, as we saw in John 3, 7, for them it's singular. God's redemptive work is first for the individual, but we can't forget it's also supposed to affect the world around us, both from society to, you look at Romans 8, the cosmos. Romans 8 is a, a deep chapter. It's one of the richest chapters in the Bible for my money. And so that's, this is a, a rabbit trail, but Paul speaks of the renewal, not just of people, but of all creation in Romans 8. In verse 21, he says that creation itself will also be freed from its bondage to decay and gain entrance into the glorious freedom of the children of God. See, creation will be brought into our freedom and glory as children of God. Salvation of God's children is primary, but there is meant to be a renewal in the world around us that's the fruit of our individual personal salvation. And there's something about, you talk about creation, spending time in creation, out in the wilderness, just getting out on a trail, going out into the wilderness, and it just reminds you that life is, is bigger than you. Right? There's no creature comforts. But there are creatures that may eat you, right? Those kind of wildernesses, right? When we go around our home, when we go around town, even the roads, everything is built for our ease and our comfort, right? But you go out in the wilderness and you realize, actually, it's bigger than me, right? This out here is not made with me in mind. It's wild. It's the wilderness. And the, the village in the DR is a lot like this because there's not a whole lot of amenities. Um, if you pick me up at the airport when I come back, well, actually, we'll have been at a hotel where we'll showered. But if you meet me right after the week there, I'm going to smell a little bad, right? There's not all the amenities you would expect uh, if you're going to go spend on a vacation, right? But for my money, it's one of the most beautiful views and panoramas I've ever seen in my life. 
You're at the top of this hill in the DR. And reminds me of this Tim Keller quote I read a while back where it says, in the presence of beauty, you cease to be the hero in your own story. It's no longer all about you. You know, the DR does that to me. And I didn't do any research about the scenery in Antioch. And I've never been there, so I can't tell you what it looks like. But we do see that the individuals there were committed to something that was bigger than just themselves. And as a result, the church in Antioch becomes a part of something bigger than just that church. This church in Antioch is like home base for Paul. It's where three of his missionary journeys begin from. And when you begin to get this perspective that it's bigger than just me and it's about the church worldwide or the church on the, in the 757 in Hampton Roads, the church everywhere, you begin to send. Again, the team that's going to the DR tomorrow, and we support missionaries in Turkey, China, groups that go to Haiti. But if we aren't careful, the way we define church can become so small. Like church is like a 90-minute service on the weekend, or church is like these four walls and this square footage, but it's bigger than city life, and it's certainly bigger than any service. You know, before we leave the DR every year, they kind of do this goodbye ceremony, service of sorts, where a lot of the adults from the village, all the kids come out, and all the leaders come out, and we worship together. They pray over us. We pray over them. It's powerful, and it's awesome. And the last time before we left, we sang How Great Is Our God in Spanish, right? You recognize the melody, so you know what they're singing, but you just realize, man, it's so much bigger than me, even bigger than just my culture or my country. Like, the church is global, And to me, that's inspiring. Because if I'm honest, sometimes the Great Commission is intimidating. This idea, hey, y'all go out, make disciples of the whole world. No big deal, right? That is intimidating, right? To think, man, that's our call. How are we going to make disciples of the whole planet? And when you begin to try to grasp that, it can become paralyzing where we never engage with our mission like right in front of us. I've said it before, but God doesn't just need people to cross borders with the gospel. He needs people that will cross the street, right? Go to your neighbors, right? Share the hope that we have. But when you realize that the church is everywhere, that there's millions upon millions upon millions of Christians around the world, millions of churches around the world, and if each person that follows Christ would just be faithful with their circle of influence, with their neighborhood, their workplace, how quickly would the kingdom of God expand like that? And the Great Commission would be that much closer as God's kingdom is ushered in. That's just the third point as we look at Antioch and their kingdom focus that was so countercultural. It's just this idea that Jesus wants me to be equally, if not more, concerned with his kingdom coming to earth than me going to heaven. Unlike travel culture, your, your faith shouldn't solely be focused on you getting to your destination. Tomorrow, I'm not going to lie, I'm, I'm with 12 people. I'm going to be stressed that we get to our destination. If we don't, there's problems, right? But our journey of faith is supposed to be bigger than that, than just me getting to my destination. And don't get me wrong, your heavenly homecoming is going to be awesome. I mean, I can't imagine, right? We can't, <laughs> I can only imagine, right? Surrounded by your glory. And I can't come back from that. But we should look forward to it. It's going to be amazing. It should fuel us. It should energize us. This idea that we're spending eternity in heaven, right? We're seeing loved ones. We're seeing Jesus. God's going to be there. But it shouldn't be our sole focus. I would argue that God wants our focus to shift from that to something altogether bigger. And I would argue that because every time I pray the Our Father, I consider it more and more, right? The Our Father starts with Spoiler alert, our Father. And 
I believe the same way, like Ephesians 1 talks about how we're adopted into the family of faith. God is our father. Jesus is our brother. We're all brothers and sisters in the faith. And the same way that Steph and I, we adopted Raj, and we've had him for a year and a half, he's adopted, but I want him to have full assurance that at no point in life is he not my son and I'm not his father. Like, he has my full and unconditional love, like Tim was talking about during the worship set. I want him to have full assurance of that. And I believe God wants us to have full assurance of that. I believe the enemy wants us to, our whole lives, kind of doubt it, wonder, what if, right? What if I'm not saved? Or what if I could do better and somehow earn God's love more? And he loves for us to buy into that when God wants us to have full assurance that we're his sons and we're his daughters. That's why the Our Father, I believe, begins with those words, Our Father. It's a reminder again and again that we are sons and daughters. And if you can have assurance of that, then you don't have to stress it. It doesn't have to become the object of your focus, and your focus can shift to the later words in the Our Father, which is thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I think I just dropped the King James Version. (laughs) The thys, right? And you might say, well, that sounds poetic. That sounds nice. What does that practically even look like, right? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, ask yourself, what's the character of God? What do you think heaven is going to look like? And then, all right, let's work on that here on earth. right, heaven, again, is going to have an awesome welcome. (laughs) heaven's going to be full of joy, heaven's going to be full of justice, heaven's going to be full of worship, it's going to be full of uh, this welcoming love, right, it's going to be full of peace, so where there's a lack of peace here on earth, we should push for peace, it's going to be full of justice, so where there's injustice, we should fight injustice, it's going to be full of diversity, so where there's exclusion of people, we should fight for inclusivity, diversity, So the Christians in Antioch, they looked around and they realized, again, you see in the New Testament, this Jew and Gentile racial divide. But it says here in Acts chapter 11 that they began to speak to Greeks also. And on a small scale, right, some Gentiles had been approached by the gospel. Philip had talked to the Ethiopian eunuch earlier in Acts. Peter had gone to the household of Cornelius. But this was the first time we see a a full church reaching out across this racial divide of Jews and Gentiles. I'm going to butcher his name, but when Seleucus Nicator built the city of Antioch, I looked it up, I knew it was going to butcher it anyways, he built the walls within it to separate people of different backgrounds from each other. He knew that racially, each race typically thinks of itself as greater than all the rest. So get this, he built walls around the ghettos to protect each of the ethnic neighborhoods from harming each other. Like, this is the way he designed the city. He said, look, if racial divides are going to exist and be problematic, we'll build walls to cancel out the problem. The only problem with that is the gospel tells us if there's walls, obliterate them, right? Go through them. Because the notion of superiority, whether it's based on race, socioeconomic status, party affiliation, whatever, anytime we embrace this notion of better than, then we stand totally opposed to the gospel of grace. And the church of Antioch got this. So you had these Christians in Antioch who were crossing lines, or more specifically, going through walls and over walls to worship with people of a different race who weren't like them, and introduce Jesus to these people. Because if your identity is in Christ, then walls come down, period. If your identity is in Christ, then lines in the sand get erased, because there's no us versus them in a gospel where it's Jesus for them. And then the church takes on this call of us for them. Or you either love those people you love or you pray for your enemy and love them anyways, right? That diversity, people of different backgrounds and the like, people that vote differently, look differently, earn differently, it'll exist. It'll exist in the church and it'll exist in heaven. It's called diversity. But the division based on that diversity, kill it. You're all a part of the family. 
If I could have the worship team come up just for the last 10 minutes. I love that there's, there's a diversity in this church. When you look at passions and what people are doing to impact the community, Sharon in that video, she's at the Newport News campus, but she uh, leads established footsteps, which does cherish to reach out to strip clubs. You got Stephanie Birch, who went from the Suffolk Police Force to work with the International Justice Mission to help with human trafficking. You got Jay, who sits over here. He's not here tonight, but he works with the 138 House, men that have just gotten out of prison. There's all these different ways that you can be passionate about what you find in Scripture. Steph and I, right, we're passionate about orphans. We're working on our second adoption, but I realize that's not for everybody, right? But you can't do everything all at once, but you can come in line in the church and together mutually encourage each other, help each other as we usher in his kingdom. There's something powerful when you realize you're in something that's bigger than just yourself. You can encourage through prayer. You can sow into financially. You can pick up some of that weight and come alongside them, but you can't do everything. But I would challenge you, find a way to do something. And may you be, borrowing from the author of Hebrews, even provoked to do something. And maybe you can't go, right? Maybe you're not going to be going on one of these mission trips to the DR, mission trips to Haiti, but you, you can't give. And we aren't called to just find our salvation and our seat on our way to heaven and get to my destination. We're ushered not just to a seat, but a place in a bigger story that's soaked with and saturated with purpose. So may we be like the Christians that were first called Christians in Antioch that were committed, not just involved, that were more concerned with me than or excuse me, we than me and my self-promotion or self-preservation, and that we're more concerned with ushering in God's kingdom than having a sole focus on escaping to heaven. But tonight, if we could stand, we're going to go back into the song, It Is Well, but I don't want to leave this place. If you're here, maybe you've been involved. Maybe you've been involved in church for years, but you've never made a commitment to Christ to say, Jesus, I don't want church to just be a 90-minute service on the weekend. I don't want my relationship with you to just be uh, this or that. I want you to come and be Lord of my life and Savior and stand under the cross. If you've never made that confession of commitment to follow Jesus Christ, then tonight, as we go into worship, as we close, I'll be right here, and I would love to pray for you, resource you, give you what you need, come alongside you in prayer, but also for everyone here, for the rest of us. It, we didn't have time to break down this passage fully, but there's another phrase in there that's powerful. It says that the power of the Lord was with them. I believe that the power of the Lord is with each person here, but again, the lie of the enemy is try harder. The lie of the enemy is, is, is do more, try harder, but really the Holy Spirit would tell us tonight, no, lean harder into God. Lean more into his grace, lean more into his peace, Lean more into his presence. Lean more into his provision. Lean more into his power. Lean more into his mercy. And I just pray that as we close tonight in worship, we do just that as we pursue him in praise. We would lean into that which we need to do that which he's called us to do, both as individuals in this peninsula and what we sow into around the world, but also individually what he's called us to do, reaching those people around us, our circle of influence. God, we know that in the beginning of Acts, your Holy Spirit came upon the apostles, the disciples, and your followers, and it filled them, it says, with boldness to do what you've called them to do. God, I pray that as we close tonight, as we continue to pursue you in worship, you would fill us with your spirit, and as it's said of the church in Antioch, that you would also be with us in power. As we go about doing what you've called us to do, God, come upon us tonight, we pray. Sing through it all.